Well, uh, welcome to River City Church. Good to have you guys here this morning. If you are new or visiting, uh, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, As always, it's really good to be with you. I'm looking forward to studying God's Word with you guys this morning. Um, Man, it has been a full week at, uh, at the Pepin household. I got the second version of the flu this week, and uh, I think Hannah is more ready for me to stop being sick than I am ready, which is saying something, right? Um, So that was like Monday and Tuesday, and then on Wednesday or Tuesday evening, Wednesday, we found out we got the building, and so I've learned more about church chairs in the last two days than I ever thought was, one, possible to know, and two, necessary to know. Um, and so if you have questions about church chairs, you come talk to me. I know, I, know, I know the answers to those questions, right? Anyways, in light of all that, uh, we're going to see if we can't keep it short and sweet this morning as we uh, continue our series in the five solas. If you've been with us at all, we've been uh, uh, going through a, a short series, taking a look at the five solas of the Reformation. The five solas are uh, five Kind of five pillars, five fundamental foundational truths that around which our beliefs about how we know God and how we are made right with him are based. The five solas are these five foundational pillars, five foundational truths that are the foundation for what we believe about how we come to know God and how we're made right with him. As one pastor writes, he says, the five solas are the summarization of what we believe the Bible teaches about salvation, that we are saved by God's grace alone, on the basis of Christ alone, received through faith alone, alone, to the glory of God alone, with Scripture alone as the only final decisive authority on truth. And so when we began this series, we began by spending two weeks and we took a look at the doctrine of sola scriptura or Scripture alone as our highest authority. It's the conviction that Scripture alone is our highest authority in all matters of faith and practice. That's in what we believe and in what we do. And we saw in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that The Bible is worthy of being our highest authority because it is the trustworthy and sufficient very word of God. Nothing is more important than God's word. Nothing matters more and nothing is equal in authority to God's word. Not our own experiences, not our own reason or our own intellect and not our religious traditions. When any of those things are in contradiction to or at odds with the Bible, those things are wrong, not the Bible. That's the approach that we take. And so the supremacy and the sufficiency of the Bible is the foundation of all of the solas. If the Bible isn't the basis for what is true, then none of the other things matter. Because if that's not what's true, then anything can be true, right? Sola Scriptura answers the question about how we come to know God and come to know what is true. And last week we took a look at the doctrine of sola gratia, or grace alone, which along with the two solas that we're going to be talking about this morning, answer the question about what we believe about how we are saved, how we are made right with God. The fancy theological word is how we are justified. And the, what we saw last week is that the, the doctrine of sola gratia, or grace alone, means that we don't bring anything to the table except our dead, rebellious hearts. We don't bring our merit. We don't bring our good works. And the only thing that, we, that God owes us is the penalty that is due our sin. 
And it's God's completely unmerited grace that is shown to us that brings, like we saw in Ephesians 2 last week, that it brings dead people to life. It frees captives and it pardons those who are condemned in sin. And we said that that's the best news in all of the world. The good news of salvation by grace alone produces in us a, a humble joy and a passionate obedience and a longing for people, to, for others, our family and our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers, a passionate longing that they might come to know and love and follow Jesus as we do. And the good news about God's grace, his unmerited, undeserved, unearned grace, that is the thing that fuels our worship, and our proclamation of the gospel. That's the thing that like, fuels our passion and our love for the Lord and our lives given back to him. And so this morning, we're going to be taking a look at uh, two more solas. So we're going to be taking, combining this week the doctrines of sola fida and solus Christus. And so the question is, God's grace alone, it's sufficient to save us. The only question is, is how do we appropriate that grace? How do we make that grace our own? How do we receive it? God's grace is enough to save us. The question is, how do we receive it? And so that's where Romans 5 comes in. And these next two sola, sola, fida, and sola, Christus say that we are saved by grace alone. And that happens through faith alone in Christ alone. When we take a look at these three together, The idea is that grace alone is the basis for our salvation. Faith alone is the means of our salvation. And Christ alone is the object of our salvation. Christ is the object. So it's just as it was with grace alone. What we believe about our salvation, how that happens through faith in Christ, that radically changes how we relate to God, and it really changes how we live. And so with that in mind, let's uh, dig into our passage in Romans chapter 5 this morning, and uh, then we'll pray. Romans 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces character and character hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Verse six, so you see at the just the right time when you were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if we were enemies, God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more then, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? And not only this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for your word. God, I'm I'm just thankful that what I say is not that important. God, I just pray that just as we study your word this morning, that like the truths of your word might be proclaimed with clarity and that they might be good news to us. I just pray that you'd fill me with your spirit. God, I just, I'm tired. (laughs) Oh, yeah. God, I don't have anything to bring that doesn't come from you this morning. So God, I just ask that you might fill me with your spirit so that our time together would be fruitful and good and life-giving for us. 
that it would be transformative for our hearts and our lives that we think about the good news about salvation through faith in your son, Jesus. God, so I just want to submit to you as I teach and lead this morning. God, we ask that we all would submit to you under the authority of your word so that uh, you might teach and train us, that we might come to know and love and follow and serve you, Jesus. And so we pray that you do all that for our good and for your great and abiding glory. Amen. Amen. Sola fida, sola Christus. We begin with sola fida, faith alone. Sola fida says that it's the declaration that faith alone is the means of our salvation. Faith is the means by which we receive God's sufficient grace. Verses 1 and 2 of our passage in Romans chapter 5 this morning begin, Therefore, since you've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Last week in Ephesians 2, we saw that the unmerited, unearned, undeserved grace of God is the only hope for sinners like you and me. All of us were dead in, enslaved to, and condemned because of our sin. We were separated from God. We were excluded from his kingdom. We were without hope. Verse 10 in our passage this morning says that we are enemies of God. But God changes all of that in and through the person and the work of Jesus. And now verse 1 says that we've been justified. We've been made right with God. And the pastor says the means by which we receive that grace, the means by which we are set right with God is through faith. It's through faith that we go from being at war with God to being at peace with him. It's through faith that we receive God's grace that we so desperately need. The justification we have, the right standing with God that we have, that is applied to us through faith. And again, I just want to be overly clear here. Faith is not a necessary part of the way that God's grace is applied to us. Faith is the sufficient means by which God's grace is applied to us. It's not just necessary. It is sufficient. That is so important for us to understand. If we don't understand that God's that faith is the sufficient means by which we receive God's grace, then we are going to try to add stuff to faith all the time. The doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, is in direct contrast to the notion that anything we do can change our status or our standing with God in any way. It is diametrically opposed to the belief that our good works play any role in our justification, in our being made right with God. In fact, Paul has spent the better part of the last two chapters of Romans going like abundantly out of his way to make absolutely clear that the only kind of people God saves are ungodly people who he justifies according to no work of their own. Ephesians 2 was also clear. Our good works are a response to God's amazing grace, not an anticipation of it, not a, not a striving for it. And so Paul is not saying that because he... Paul's not saying... Like, it's easy to think, like, ah, you don't, yeah, you don't, need, you don't need good works. That's not going to help you. He's not saying that because he, like, reached into his pocket of good works and was like, oh, there's nothing in there. Dang. Well, I guess that doesn't matter, right? No, he's saying that because... In Philippians 2, Paul gives us his spiritual resume, and pretty much what he says is, I was the Michael Jordan of spirituality. 
like in every possible way, nailed it, right? Greatest ever. That's, what, that's who I was. And he says, um, you know how much that gets me with God? You know how much favor that gets me with him? Uh, you know how much value that gets me? That gets me about as much value as Michael Jordan in the front office of the Hornets, which is absolutely nothing, okay? He was great on the court, not so much on the front office, right? So Paul says, even if our good works could save us, they would never be enough. You see, the sin that we need saving from is not just bad behavior. It is a mutinous, rebellious heart. See, at the heart of what... The definition of sin is not, is not wrong, bad things or bad behavior. The definition of sin is, is that we say, God, I want to reject you as the king. I reject you as the one who decides what is good and true and what is right and wrong and what, who is the most important And instead, what we do is we substitute ourselves in that spot of most importance. And we make our priorities and our values and our opinions and the things that we care about, we put that in the place of highest authority. And what that is, is that is mutiny. That's rebellion. That's saying, God, I reject you as the good king of the universe, and I enthrone myself. I put myself on the throne of that thing. That's what sin is. And that gets worked out in tons of bad behavior. It gets worked out in all kinds of different things. But that's what sin is, and that's what needs paying for. That's why the penalty of sin is death. Because it is about a rebellion against the king of the universe. No amount of good deeds is going to be able to make up for a mutiny. No, what we rely on instead is God's grace. And it's obtained, it's received, it is applied, it is accessed through faith alone. Just faith. Faith alone is the admission that we need saving, that we bring nothing to the table, that we are wholly, completely, in every possible way, that we're dependent on God for saving. But Romans 5 goes on, it's not just faith in general that saves us. It's not just vague faith in God that saves us. It is a specific faith. And it's a faith in the person and the work of Jesus. You see, who we put our faith in matters. Who we put our faith in matters. The only kind of saving faith is, the, is a faith that is placed entirely, wholly, absolutely on Jesus alone. And that brings us to our second sola, solus Christus. See, faith is the means by which we receive God's grace. It's the means of our salvation. But Jesus is the object of our faith. He is the object of our salvation. He is the one in whom our faith is found. It's in his person and in his work. A passage doesn't just talk about what Jesus did. Our passage this morning, it talks about who he is. In verse 1, it says, and twice it refers to the, Jesus as the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is his title, and it means king. When it, Paul says that it's our Lord Jesus Christ that has saved us, he says it's King Jesus, the ruling, reigning king of the universe. That's who saved us. He is the Lord. He is the King. Verse 10 says, and he is the Son of God. He is not the begotten of God. He is the second member of the Godhead. And so Romans is saying that Jesus is 
God. He claimed to be God, and he proved that he was. And here is what's so important about understanding who the person of Jesus is. Jesus' work doesn't matter unless he's God. Jesus' death for us is just like a, hey, thanks, bro, I appreciate that. Unless he's actually able to pay the penalty that we're due. See, if Jesus is not God, then he cannot save us. You see, only an infinite God can pay an infinite penalty that sin is due. Only an infinite God can pay up the infinite penalty that sin is due. And so that brings us to the second part of our, the object of our faith. It's not just the person of Jesus, but it is the work of Jesus. The passage highlights three things that Jesus accomplishes for us. Three things that are applied to us through faith in his work. And the first is one, reconciliation. Verse 10, it says we've been reconciled to God through Christ. Verse 1, we have peace with God through Jesus we go from being enemies of God to family of God. We go from being separated from God, being excluded from his kingdom, being without hope, to being reconciled to him, to being included in his kingdom, to having an unshakable hope, verses 3 and 4 talks about, even in the midst of all kinds of trials. You see, it's Jesus' death in our place for our sins that reconciles us to God. And all of that is possible because of the second thing that Jesus accomplishes for us. One, our justification. Verse 9 says that we are, by his blood, we have been justified. And what enables our reconciliation is our justification. Again, that is a fancy theological word. And what it means to be justified is it means to be declared righteous, to be made right with God. And to be justified is something that God declares what is true about us. God does the justifying. God records, God puts in our account that we are right with him. That's what it means to be justified. And that happens through the person and work, the blood of Jesus. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived, and he died the death that our sin deserved. And on the cross, as 1 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who, who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, so that in his sacrifice on the cross, in our place, for our sin, Jesus would take the penalty and we would go free. You see, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Martin Luther famously refers to this as the great exchange. By faith, we get Jesus' righteousness applied to our account. His perfect standing with the Father. When God looks at us, what he sees is the same status as he sees in the person of Jesus. But that's only half of the great exchange because while we get Jesus's righteousness, his right standing with God, what he receives is our unrighteousness. What he receives is the penalty that our sin was actually due, which brings us to the last thing. The passage tells us about what Jesus accomplished for us. It's third, our propitiation. That's another fancy theological word, but it just means this. In verse 9, verse 9 begins, Since we have been justified by his blood, second part of verse 9, how much more will we be saved from the wrath of God through him? This is really important. I know like it can feel like this is heady, but just this is really important if we're going to love Jesus and give our lives for him. Jesus did not just give us his righteousness. Jesus absorbed 
God's wrath that was due our sin. Jesus did not just give us his right standing with God. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God that was due our sin. Jesus paid the penalty that our sin was due. We escaped the wrath of God, but Jesus did not. On the cross, God's wrath, his just opposition towards sin, his constant, unrelenting hostility towards evil and rebellion, that, that had to, that had to, the price had to be paid for that. Otherwise, God is not a just judge. On the cross, God's just wrath towards sin was poured out on Jesus. We cannot miss that. If we think that we just receive God's grace and that there was no penalty that was ever paid for, for our sin, what will happen is that we will undermine the cost of Jesus' sacrifice and we will undermine the seriousness of sin in our lives. If we don't, like, on a heart level, remember that Jesus Jesus absorbed God's wrath that was due our sin. Then we're just going to like undermine, we won't see how valuable his sacrifice was for us. And we won't see how serious our own sin is. And so saving faith is not just a vague hope that God will give us his grace, but it is rather a specific trust in the person and the work of Jesus. Christ alone is the object of a saving faith. The problem is, is that even though we factually might believe that, our lives often reveal that we functionally believe that somehow we participate in our own justification, that somehow we participate in our status and our standing with God. And that is both antithetical to the good news of the gospel and the very definition of religiosity. You see, the gospel The good news about God's grace through faith in Jesus is about all the things that God has done to get to you. And religion is about all the things that we worthlessly try to do to get to God. The gospel is about all that God has done to pursue us, to get to us, to follow us, to find us. And religion is about all the stuff that we try to do to get to him. They are absolutely opposed you see, our actions reveal that we functionally, we, we act religious, that we functionally believe that we participate in our own justification, that our actions change our status or our standing with God. Our lives reveal that when our motivations for morality or obedience are in order to get or keep God's favor, instead of in response to the incredible truth that he's already pleased with us and calls us his kids, The truth that the Bible just overtly proclaims is that our good works could never be good enough to change how God sees us. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says that we've all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. One commentator says Isaiah is saying that all our religious efforts to justify ourselves in the sight of God are about as appreciated by him as a bloody menstrual rag being offered to him as a birthday present. It's not helping. All but in contrast, God is totally pleased with a faith that is placed in the perfect, finished work of Jesus. God is greatly pleased with that because he's pleased with Jesus. Our actions reveal that we functionally believe that we participate in our own justification when we beat ourselves up when we sin. But oftentimes when we sin, we just feel like, God, how, did I, how do I keep doing that? 
Why do I keep doing that? I'm such a failure. Why? And we beat ourselves up about those things. And what happens is, what we're saying is that Jesus' penalty was not enough. The price that Jesus paid, the penalty that he absorbed on the cross, that, that that wasn't enough. And somehow we need to add to that. Somehow we need to somehow we need to add to the penalty that Jesus paid to make sure it was really enough. And the good news about the gospel that we need to remember is that Jesus became sin for you. And he absorbed all of God's wrath that was due your sin. God has no wrath left for you. If your faith is in the person and the work of Jesus, God has no wrath left for you. He loves you. He is not beating you up. He wants to help you. That's, what, that's why Jesus' work must be enough for us. You see, sometimes I think what happens is that uh, we confuse guilt and shame. See, guilt is actually a good thing. It's right. We, we, we are guilty. We do wrong things. But shame is not the not the the belief that we do wrong things, shame is the wrong belief that we are wrong, that we are bad. And see, what the good news about the gospel says is that, yeah, we are guilty. But through faith in Jesus, you've been made right and you have been set free. That's why in Romans, Paul says, there's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus already took all of that. He absorbed all of that on your behalf. And so in Christ, you are free and you are clean. You don't need to beat yourself up anymore. Sometimes our actions reveal that we functionally believe that we participate in our own justification and we're afraid that when we sin, God's view of us has changed. And we wonder what what God must think of us when we feel like we keep on failing. And I just want to remind you, verse six says, it wasn't on your best day that God thought you were worth dying for. It was when you hated him. God says, while you were still his enemies, that's when Jesus died for you. When you were at your worst. And if God chose to love you, knowing when, knowing who you are and when you were would be absolutely at your worst, there's nothing that you can do to mess that up. He already knows who you are. He already knows all that you have done. He already knows all that you will do. What happens is that we, when we believe our performance changes how our status and our standing with God, then we'll just always be afraid of him. But when we believe that it's faith in Jesus' work, that's the only thing that changes our status and our standing with him, that lets God be the good father that we really, really need. Because then we come to him when we mess up and when we fail. We come to him and we say, God, help me. God comes full of grace, overwhelming in love, so that he might restore and renew and make us his people. You see, what happens when we functionally believe these things, when we functionally believe that it's not faith alone that saves us, that it's somehow we participate in that, then what we do is what we, we minimize the gospel and we maximize ourselves, which is the very opposite of the thing that we want to do. And the good news of the gospel is not that Jesus, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus plus anything is nothing. It's worthlessness. Instead, Jesus plus nothing is everything we need. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus plus nothing is everything that we need. One 
pastor says it this way, so let us not detract from him by trying to add to him. Let us not demean him by trying to supplement him. Let us not despise him by trying to complete his work. Instead, let us put our faith in Christ alone. See, the only kind of faith that saves us is a faith that is in Christ alone. It's a faith that is completely dependent on God and not on ourselves. Saving faith acknowledges our sin and our need for saving. It's boasts in the truth that we were dead in our sin and we were powerless to save ourselves and Jesus died for us. Saving faith is rooted in the sobering truth that we deserve God's wrath for our mutinous rebellion. Yet at the same time, saving faith stands on the unwavering good news of God's grace and the finished, completed work of Jesus alone. And so we go from being enemies of God to his children, and that changes everything about us. You see, saving faith acknowledges our sin but it also changes us radically. And the Bible is abundantly clear, especially we'll see this as we continue studying the book of James. If your faith hasn't changed you, then it hasn't saved you. Saving faith is not an intellectual agreement with something that is true. Saving faith is about a submission to, to the God who is the one who saves. James 2.24 echoes this truth this way. He says, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith which is alone. You see, a faith that doesn't lead to new desires and new motives and new actions is a worthless and dead faith that has justified no one. It's a ruse. It is a front. It is a lie. It is worthlessness. But true faith radically changes who we are. The passage over and over says, well, we have a new boast, right? Our boast is in the hope and glory of God. We no longer live for ourselves, but we live for him. And that's the third thing about saving faith. Saving faith is about submission. We no longer trust in and live for ourselves. We trust in and live for Jesus. See, he's the one who has given us new life. And so he is our new And so we submit every part of who we are over to his good kingly rule. And that's the last solo that we'll get to next week. Yeah, I hope you see how good news the gospel is. I hope you see how good news it is that we get to rely on God's grace alone, obtained through faith alone in the person and the work of Jesus alone. Man, my heart, my prayer is that that would be good news to you. That those truths would be freeing to you. That they would not just be like something that you believe is true, but that they would seep deep into your heart and that they would like radically change who you are. That they would change your desires, that it would change your motives, that it would change the things you long for and the things that you live for and the things that bring you life and the things that bring you joy. My heart is that we would be a church that proclaims and lives out the truth that Jesus plus nothing is everything. And that's what we celebrate in communion, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, and that it's not of ourselves. And so the bread, it reminds us of Jesus' body that was broken for us. He lived the life that we should have lived. And the drink reminds us of Jesus' blood, which was shed for us as he absorbed God's wrath that was due our sin. 
And what we celebrate in communion, what we remember, is that on the cross through faith, Jesus traded places with us. You see, communion doesn't make us right with God. It doesn't change our status or our standing with him. Only receiving God's grace by faith in Christ does that. That's the one thing that changes our status and our standing with God. Instead, communion is a chance for us to remember and to worship God, to submit our lives to him as our savior and as our king, and to remember that truth to celebrate the good news that the Bible proclaims that we know and are made right with God, that we are saved by God's grace alone on the basis of faith alone, through Christ alone, and that's received through faith. And so it is all to the glory of God alone. That's what the five solas are all about. That's why we spent the, five, the last five weeks like talking about things that might feel like foundational, rudimentary truths. And the point is, is that if we don't get this stuff, nothing else matters. And so in communion, what we do is we celebrate the truth that we don't deserve to be right with God, but Jesus' blood has made us so. And it's by faith alone that we obtain that. Every church does communion a little bit differently. At River City, you, during our time of musical worship here at the end, you go back, you dip the bread in the juice. Communion's between you and God, and so you go whenever you're ready. You won't be dismissed. You don't need to be a member here at River City. You just need to belong to Jesus. You see, what we celebrate in communion is that Jesus alone saved us. His person, his work, his blood shed for us. So communion is a celebration of all of that. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful, most of all, for you. We are so thankful that our salvation is not based on what we bring to the table, but it's based on what you have done through your son, Jesus. And so, God, we just, like, confess and we acknowledge that so often we forget that that we forget that it's grace alone, that it's faith alone, that it's Christ alone, and we try to add something to that work. We functionally believe that we somehow, our actions, our behaviors change the way that we relate to you, and we just want to repent of that, God. We want to ask that your spirit would just give us light so we would see that in our lives and we would run from that and turn from that instead of that we would put our whole hope, our all of our trust in being made right with you through faith. In Jesus. Jesus, you are all we need. You are sufficient. And we come with glad and thankful hearts to remember that this morning. Amen.